Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be looking at two issues of democratic reform going on right now in Victoria, the future of group voting tickets used for the Victorian Upper House and the imposition of single-member wards for urban local councils in Victoria. My guest today is Henry Schlechter. Henry is an election analyst who's often seen in discussions about elections on Twitter. Hello, Henry. Hi, Ben. Pleasure to be with you today. Victoria is the last remaining jurisdiction in Australia that uses group voting tickets to distribute preferences in an upper house election after the electoral systems for the Senate and for upper houses in South Australia and Western Australia dropped the practice in recent years. I travelled to Melbourne two weeks ago to testify before the Electoral Matters Committee, who was considering the issue, and Henry, you've been paying attention to the arguments being floated around this issue. Let's start with what is the argument against reform and who is making it? Well, the Victorian inquiry was unusual in the sense that the two people who were well, not opposed to reform, but who had a significantly different perspective, were called before the inquiry. The two people who were, you've obviously had Ben... Anthony Green and Kevin Bonham, who were called and made the, the standard argument in favour of group ticket reform, which I've heard many times. There was also Malcolm McCarris, who was very often called in front of these sort of inquiries, um, and he made the case in favour of... He didn't make a case in favour of group ticket voting, but he made a case in favour of essentially getting rid of above-the-line boxes and reverting to all below-the-line voting like you have in the... Tasmania and uh, the Australian Capital Territory. And his sort of case, he has a long-standing vendetta against the Senate system, which was adopted and the system that's been adopted in Western Australia and South Australia. He believes it's fundamentally dishonest. It doesn't seem like there's a great deal of appetite for that particular change. The transcripts aren't available of his appearance, but generally speaking, he hasn't had a great deal of influence in the past in attempting to make the case for that particular reform. Before we move on from him, um, so McCarris, who is a, a long-standing kind of pioneer of political analysis and cephology in this country, he makes this case. He doesn't argue positively in favour of group voting tickets, but he vociferously attacks the kind of voting for multiple parties above the line system that we now have slight differences in most of the country in the upper house. And it seems like most of the arguments I hear for him arguing against above-the-line voting, let's say Senate-style above-the-line voting, apply just as much, if not more so, to group voting tickets. But it seems like he's using it to achieve a particular end, that his logic is if Senate-style voting system is taken off the table, they'll have no choice but to go to um, a no above-the-line voting at all, which probably the closest parallel is to um, what we they, they had for the Senate pre-1984, where the ballot paper looked pretty similar to what we have now, but there was no above-the-line voting. Um, probably the main difference, I think, if you ever went back to that, is there would not be a requirement to number quite as many preferences as, the, as was required back then, because it did produce a very high informal vote, and that was part of the reason we got group voting tickets. So that's kind of his case. And then there was someone else as well. Yes. Yeah, so the second person who was called more in favour of group voting tickets was Chris Curtis. Chris is less of a well-known figure. Um, if you read Matthew Shugart's blog, Fruits and Votes, he's very often there and he's made a lot of contributions and a lot of comments. He also quite regularly writes submissions to committees of this sort, but it was the first time I believe him actually testifying before a committee. Chris makes the case, probably the strongest affirmative case in favour of, of group voting tickets. He sort of sees that there is handy and sensible shortcut for voters, that voters to some extent trust political parties and that when a voter votes above the line for a party, they're making an informed delegation of their vote 
to someone who can best handle it and best deal with it in their interests, rather than his concern about the uh, above-the-line voting, as the Senate style above-the-line, where you number preferences above-the-line, is that it leads to higher exhaustion, and minor parties have more trouble getting elected because of that greater exhaustion. It's, again, I think a lot of people would have very significant doubts as to the degree to which Australians trust their political parties. But that's essentially the case he made. Interestingly enough, he didn't come out explicitly in favour of the system as it exists. Um, I believe he said before the committee that he would prefer that group voting tickets be limited so that a group voting ticket would only count for 12 preferences, I think, 10 or something like that. Sounds right, yeah. Yeah, he wasn't in favour, and I think he recognised that ultimately a system where a one above the line counts for 50 or 60 preferences, but below the line voting, you have to... You were sent to get 50 or 60 preferences. It's very unlikely a voter would do it if they're not compelled to, if they're not in Victoria. So he made an alternate argument um, in favour of the system. There was also a submission from the Australia Institute, which is a centre-left think tank, um, which made a similar case in favour of group ticket voting that essentially it's a handy shortcut. Voters generally trust political parties enough to delegate their vote and getting rid of it would make it more difficult for minor parties to be elected, which would be bad for political diversity. It's interesting that there was really no argument before the committee wholeheartedly in favour of leaving the system alone, right? There was an acknowledgement that something was wrong. There was clearly the people who were arguing just, you know, we know what the answer is, just use the Senate system. It works pretty well. You've seen that argument from... I think the Greens, although even the Greens were suggesting some tweaks, and you know, cephologists like myself and Anthony and Kevin um, and others who made submissions but weren't called before the committee. There was others as well that have been very helpful in finessing arguments. Um, what you would see, and I want to get into this now, is it's a conversation around how the state is broken up into regions. The Greens were going in and saying, well, we think Instead of having the eight five-member regions, we should have seven seven-member regions, which is interesting. But Sam Hibbins, who's a member of the committee, was very much pushing, we got to deal with the group voting tickets first. It shouldn't be conditional on making a change to the structure. But there was quite a few submissions. Uh, I know certainly parties like Animal Justice have been arguing this. Sure, we should get rid of group voting tickets, but it should happen alongside getting rid of the regions. So you move to a statewide structure something like New South Wales or WA that would allow a lot of these same parties to get elected anyway under a kind of a more sensible system than group voting tickets. And I got a lot of questions on that when I was before the committee that were along those lines. And I advanced the argument, look, you can make a decision about whether you want to move to a system like that. Like that's a question of a legitimate question of choice, but it's also quite a difficult change to make because it requires a referendum. And I was trying to argue very much it should not be an excuse to delay on group voting tickets. So that was one. I mean, there was also a few people, there wasn't a lot of it, but suggesting that like group voting tickets are okay, but we need to reform the way they're used, you know, ban Glen Drury from making money out of it, or like you said, limit the number of preferences or set a threshold. There's always little tweaks that are like, we can keep the system, we can just tweak it a little bit. Even Chris Curtis, I think it was him who said limiting the number of syllables in a party's name because party names are getting too long. And again, these are all symptoms of group voting tickets, but they're like, we should treat the symptoms and leave the core cause of the problem alone. Victoria will be a bit unusual in another way, in that I believe it's the only state upper house which will still have regions after Western Australia abolished it. Uh, Tasmania has a single member district, obviously, but it's very much a weird upper house. Um, 
the 8x5 model is, as Ben said, it's entrenched uh, under the Victorian Constitution. The, there's a legal debate as to whether that entrenchment is as effective as it seems, but on the face of it, that would require a referendum to change. I think Ben's right. To some extent, this has been thrown up by people like the Animal Justice Party. And I think to an extent, the Australia Institute mentioned it in their preferences. To some extent, it's a bit of a red herring. I think there may be a temptation for the committee to come out with a report that says, well, group ticket voting is terrible. We agree on that. But if we get rid of it and have this eight by five system without it, um, all of the minor parties will be shut out. We couldn't have that. We can't have a statewide district because that requires a referendum. And the government would respond to that by saying, oh, it's all too difficult. I mean, Dan Andrews' response to the committee was kind of like, oh, who knows what these eggheads think? Everyone has a self-interest and we couldn't possibly know what, what we could possibly change. You know, no positive arguments in favour of a particular system, just sort of muddying the waters and saying, you know, who could possibly know what's true or what's fair? Yeah, I think the Victorian Labor Party, is their submission to this committee was unusual in that it said, well, we, should, we, think there should, we, we think there should be discussion about reform. It was a very, very vague and carefully worded document that sort of said, well, we recognise there was a lot of debate about group ticket voting and we think there should be a discussion about reform. What I think has to be understood here is that for the Victorian Labor Party, the benefit of the current system is that it has given them in the past two upper house elections a path to passing legislation without the coalition and the Greens. It's given them the ability to negotiate with smaller minor parties, which very often vote with the government. And in that sense, it's a pretty good deal for them because the relationship between Victorian Labor and the Victorian Greens is, is not always a good one. And Labor sort of, Chris Curtis has said this explicitly um, on Fruits and Votes a number of times, that Labor wants another option to pass legislation besides the coalition of the Greens. The concern is that if they have eight by five, or even if they don't have eight by five, the group ticket voting is the only way they can possibly get that. If you look at the Senate right now, right, like Labor is absolutely reliant on the Greens to pass legislation or the coalition, one or the other, and um, they're a long way away from that changing. You know, even if they gained a few seats, they would need to gain a lot of seats. The Greens would have to lose a lot of seats, um, whereas group voting tickets makes that more possible. There's also possibly, I suspect, with the Labor Party's response, there's a bit of trauma in the sense that in the, the 2010 Victorian election, the coalition won quite narrowly, but they also got an upper house majority for a share of the votes. So there may be some concerns about the system based on that, because five member districts are pretty small, and to some extent it would lead to overrepresentation of major parties on average if we went away from the ticket voting. It's worth clarifying, they would still be a lot more proportional than the lower house. Yeah, so absolutely. But they are relatively high bar to clear, and that means that, you know, most of the time it'll be Labor, Coalition, Greens, maybe one or two others who are reasonably strong, you know. It would be pretty similar to the Senate's post-group voting tickets, you know. Pauline Hanson, Jackie Lambie, on a good day, Nick Xenophon, could, you know, if Nick Xenophon had stuck around, he probably could have kept getting elected. Um but you're not seeing a bunch of others getting elected. And I think you would see that in Victoria. You might see a shooter get elected in a regional electorate. In fact, I've done these calculations before. You know, maybe the way legalised cannabis is going, they might get to a point where they can win a seat. But um, you're not going to have a whole bunch of these parties getting elected on a couple of percent. So that's, I suspect, the context in which the debate needs to be seen, that Victorian Labor is not. It's not in its political interest to get rid of the system. And as a result, I suspect they may want it to stick around for longer. 
Now, I'm deliberately avoiding spending a lot of time banging on about the usual reasons why group voting tickets are bad. I, I support reform. I believe you do too, Henry. There's a whole podcast episode from before the last Victorian election that I'll share with Kevin Bonham where we go through all the reasons why it's terrible. Um, I thought it was interesting, though, that sometimes when you sit before a committee of politicians uh, and they have their own self-interests and, you know, it's something about electoral reform, changing the voting system, that politicians have this enormous conflict of interest and it's unavoidable. And they all do. And you kind of have to go in there and argue for the best outcome and try and harness their self-interest where you can. And it sometimes produces weird positions. I thought it was really interesting that we got into a bit of an argument. You might not have seen this yet, Henry, but with the legalized cannabis member who was on the panel around, I've been reading, and I might do a podcast on this soon, uh, Democracy for Busy People by Kevin Elliott. And I got into a bit of an argument with the legalized cannabis member where he basically said to me, oh, you're saying that voters are stupid or they're too lazy to make an effort when they vote above the line and they're in this system. And it gave me a chance to kind of make a case that I think the political system has an obligation to voters in giving them a, a system that is easily navigable and you can make a decision that you're not going to get fooled by the political parties, whereas what we have now, it's not that hard to vote below the line, but it's a bit of an effort and it's more work and every single political party is recommending a preference above the line. Um, and if you do that, like that 90% of people do, you might end up getting tricked into your vote going somewhere you don't want it to go. And so it is this kind of, I think I would argue it's a question of injustice for people who, you know, people shouldn't have to spend all of their energy and time thinking about elections, you know, to, to have their vote counted fairly. That's exactly right, Ben. And I think, you know, if you talk to family members or friends who are voting about the line, the fact that in the northern metropolitan region, the fact that if you voted for so many parties, you would have elected Adam Somirak, who I think a lot of Victorians see as a, you know, see quite negatively, that was surprising to them. Um, people don't pay a lot of attention to elections. People don't necessarily understand the system. The benefit of the Senate system is that it's it's very straightforward to understand what your vote does. It's for the party you actually support. And again, it's simply not the case for the current Victorian system. It's just not as simple as that. It's just not as simple for the voter to understand what the effect of their vote is. I was seeing a, a bit of an argument. I think I saw a bit from Chris Curtis sort of saying, well, voters can vote below the line if they want to. And certainly one of the members of the panel put it to me, you know, there was a lot of attention paid to group voting tickets and not that many people voted below the line. I think it ended up being a bit under 10% of formal votes were cast below the line and that was only slightly up from 2018 and um i think that's probably an unfair way to judge like is this an issue first of all electoral reform is boring you know it's not very interesting it does affect people's lives in a you know who gets elected and what decisions they then make but it's it's at a remove you know there's a step removed and um frankly i mean i don't think everyone who voted below the line did it because it was explicit Rejection of group voting tickets, of course, but I think if 10% of people did, that's quite a large number of people. You know, that's a lot of voters expressing concern about something. And um, I think it would be a mistake to treat that number, you know, not being higher as a sign that this isn't an issue that people care about or doesn't need to be dealt with. The comparison you always make is with the, how people followed the how to vote cards at federal elections um, under the Senate system. 
For those hard to vote cards, which would have been nearly in every single person who went to a polling booth's hand, the Coalition and Labor hard to vote cards, I don't believe they had a follow rate of much above 20%. The Labor one was higher than the Coalition one. But in both cases, the overwhelming majority of voters did not follow the how to vote card when it was presented to them on an entirely equal footing with every other possible order of preferences. It just isn't the case that voters trust political parties that much when they're presented with these alternatives on an equal footing. And that's, uh, again, it's, it's a problem because it, there's an assumption about trust. All of these positive submissions say there's an assumption that people trust political parties. I don't think that's right. And I don't think that's an accurate reflection of, of how people understand their vote. All right. Well, what do we think is going to happen next? I mean, the, the committee will make a report. I don't think it's viable for them to not recommend anything. Um, but you, you said earlier you think maybe they'll um, they'll kind of tie it up a little bit and say, well, you know, we can't just do group voting ticket reform there. We need to do some other things with it because of the size of the regions and might, might even kind of suggest a referendum or something, but uh, we'll kind of kick it then to the Labor government that doesn't look very enthusiastic about dealing with it. The last report, if you remember, recommended another report into the group voting ticket system, another inquiry which never took place. Um, it's not clear to me, again, it, it seems that the government, there's a plenty of options for the government to strategically write a report which recognises the group ticket voting as bad and, and the recommendation is not sufficiently clear or not sufficiently explicit or sufficiently difficult that the government can throw up its hands and go, well, it's all too hard, we don't want to do this. It's possible they say we do another inquiry into this issue specifically. It's possible they say we need a referendum. Um, as, as you point out, I think it's the least likely possibility, and I may look like a fool on this in some time, but the least likely possibility is that, is that there is an explicit recommendation out of this inquiry that the government abandoned group tickets. I suspect that's part of why Malcolm McCarris and Chris Curtis were called. And there is an argument in the community over this, but if you read the submissions, there were very few in favour of keeping group tickets, and the committee opted to call authors of two of those submissions. Very respected people, of course, but it's hard to avoid the conclusion, looking at what the committee's done, that there is not going to be a strong recommendation in favour of getting rid of group voting tickets. All right, so there's another topic we want to talk about today. There's a bit of a theme between them. They're both issues where the Labor government in Victoria has uh, kind of allowed less than ideal democratic practices to infiltrate the state, um, a bit disappointing on reform and, you know, things that Adam Somriak is a fan of. It's probably a common theme through these. I'm sure he's I'm sure he's a fan of group voting tickets now. Victoria's Electoral Commission is currently implementing a change to the local government electoral system, which was a consequence of changes that were made to local government legislation way back in 2020. They were pushed through by then local government minister Adam Somriak, who is now member of the DLP, crossbencher in the upper house, after being kicked out of the Labor Party. The changes mandated single-member wards for every council in the Melbourne urban area outside of the city of Melbourne itself, as well as for major regional cities. In rural councils, there would remain a choice between electing the whole council at large or in multi-member or single-member wards. Uh, interestingly, they also got rid of, across the state, the ability to have some wards elect different numbers from other wards within the same council, which is a good improvement, whether you're in an urban council or a rural council. 
Uh, Victoria's councils are supposed to undergo periodic reviews of their local ward structures where they consider the number of councillors, the number of wards, what those ward boundaries should be. The 2020 legislative changes were implemented for about half the state prior to the 2020 council elections, and the remaining councils are currently undergoing reviews which will implement those changes. Uh, Henry, you've been looking at some of the ward maps that have been coming out. We haven't gotten any final ward maps yet. A, A lot of them have been submitted to the minister and we haven't seen the final result. But a lot of draft ward maps have been produced through the committee that's in charge of this process. What council ward maps have you found the most interesting? I think some of the most interesting examples have been the rural areas. Um, When the legislation was passed in 2020, the crossbench didn't like the idea of switching to single-member districts, and the Greens didn't either. So the government had to cut a deal with the coalition. And as part of that deal, I believe the idea was to carve out some rural councils. It's a bit confusing, but essentially there are a number of councils which are not really major regional cities, but we're still subject to the obligation to have single-member district wards. So you have a number of councils such as Horsham, for example, which is no one's idea of a big city, which is subject to these new requirements. And where the VEC is essentially, some people may have seen this, it's like drawing a number of wards. There's a very small, there's a town and there's a lot of farmland inside the council area. So you have this almost a pizza-sized ward which cuts into the city. We have a donut map which had two big wards on the outside and a few in the city. Some of them, they radiate out from the centre, right? Every ward radiates out from the city centre all the way out to the council boundary. That's right. And there's a, they seem to me to be unjustifiable. The legislation obviously requires it, but they seem to me to be have a in terms of representing a ward like that, it would be quite difficult. Um, you would have a considerable difference in terms of the communities of interest. Again, a number of, there's some arbitrariness. Wangaratta is included in the changes, but Manella isn't, despite the fact they're sort of both sort of anchored. And in those council wards that have, you can see why it hasn't been recommended for a rural council, because you have very big single member wards that take up bits of towns. Um, and communities of interest essentially split in half um, because there's just no way of effectively balancing the number of wards without splitting communities of interest in half. So those are, I think, the worst wards out there. I also noticed the Latrobe Council ward map was an interesting one where, you know, there's a couple of big towns in Latrobe and pretty much the, the map I saw pretty much had split all of them in odd ways combining bits of each of them with each other. None of this is a deliberate effort at gerrymandering or anything. It's just getting the equal numbers of population at these micro levels gets messier and gets more complicated. They don't make a lot of sense, frankly, but that's that's kind of the rule. If you're going to have wards that only elect one person and so divide these areas up into like nine or 12 or 11 you know, equally sized areas, you're going to end up with some weird choices. You also can see that in some of the urban councils. We're hinting at this before, but one of the councils which has had the most difficult map is Port Phillip, which covers the sort of Port Melbourne in a, very much an inner city council. The requirement is that each ward be within 10% of the average of, across all wards. They've drawn a map which is well outside that for a number of wards, but what they say is that the population projections will bring it back into compliance by 2024 and that they that they've drawn a map for 2023 it would have been wrong in 2024. That's a place where a lot there's a lot of construction going on. In there's a lot of apartment buildings going up. It's where that fisherman's there's a fisherman's bend sort of growth area there. It's very difficult for them to 
the map itself is very complex and very convoluted. And even then, it's not in compliance now and is relying on these population projections to be in compliance later on. I suspect there are still a number of councils where they haven't, the more inner city ones in the western suburbs where they, they haven't submitted boundaries yet, I suspect that's going to be the, that may be the case in a number of those as well, where just the population change is so dramatic um, or the projected population change that they will be drawing boundaries that are not in compliance now, but on the hope that they'll be in compliance later on. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't actually looked at Port Phillip. I was thinking about uh, Yarra, and we'll get to Yarra in a minute. But um, this makes me think of a conversation I had with Anthony on the last episode about redistributions more generally, and we mostly talked about federal and state redistributions, but we touched on councils that in New South Wales, which has multi-member wards, and all the councils I'm talking about here have three-member wards. Um, So you're dividing the council up into three, four, or five equally sized areas. The councils that are having the biggest problems are either on the urban fringe, um, like the hills, Blacktown, Camden, where they have to redistribute after every election because all the population growth is happening in a couple of wards, one or two wards. But then Parramatta, where I live, where Parramatta covers the Olympic Park precinct, which is an area that was, you know, it was industrial wasteland 30 years ago. They built a bunch of stadiums. They played a bunch of sport there. And now they are filling that area with houses, apartments, enormous apartments, enormous numbers of people going to that area. And I would imagine if you had to divide that up into single member wards, you'd end up with wards that just cover a couple of blocks of giant apartment buildings and you build an extra apartment building and the, the ward maps off, you know, it, it that on its own, like violates the electoral law by building a big apartment building and filling it with people. And so I'd imagine the same thing is true. I mean, Popular doesn't cover South Bank, does it? No. But it covers those kind of areas just south of the CBD where there's a lot of apartment growth. In fact, the one urban council that was carved out of the system was the city of Melbourne, which retains it in a directly elected mayor and retains its own unsubdivided district without group voting tickets. And I think there's a recognition that it would be very, very difficult to draw wards for a place like the city of Melbourne. But by the same token, it's very, going to be very difficult to do it for these inner city councils as well. Mm. I mean, looking at Yarra, I also it just seemed kind of absurd the size of some of these areas where I think I worked out at one point you could cross one of the wards by walking for five minutes. It was a five-minute walk across the shortest part of the ward and across the longest end-to-end of a ward, it was about a half an hour walk to go from one tip to the other tip of the ward. Um, and, you know, that's just the nature. That's Yarra Council. It's a ninth of the council. It's probably an argument for the council being a bit small, um, but I'm also someone who's often an advocate for having lots of councillors but you can't really do that with single-member wards because they get tinier and tinier and tinier. One of the arguments uh, I've heard from people like uh, Travis Jordan, who's been doing a lot of arguments around how this stuff affects renters' rights, was pointing out if you're someone who's a homeowner, you get to stay in the same home and, and having a very localised ward kind of benefits people whose lives are very focused in that area. Whereas if you're someone who, even if you stay in the same council area, you're a renter, you move every couple of years, you're bouncing between wards. You're not staying in the same ward, right? Like the people you know, the connections you have in the community are going to be spread around that area. And having these tiny wards really like values localised connection to an extreme degree overall, other kinds of connection that might be, you know, beneficial if you're a candidate trying to get elected? Unlike in New South Wales, political parties don't appear on local government ballot papers in Victoria. It can be quite difficult for a voter to understand 
what political party they're supporting by voting. You have to go through to count the statements candidates submit um, to or look at the advertising, I guess. It's going to create something probably more of a difficulty for people voting in these smaller single-member wards because they may not have a candidate of their party. The parties don't always run candidates across every ward. They don't run full slates of candidates in local councils. It may be the case that it's more confusing for voters to not have a candidate of their political party choice um, and it'll be limit them in their choice of candidates anyway because there's a smaller pool of candidates. There'll be uncontested elections in councils where there never would have been before. Almost certainly, yes. The government sort of spun this with, oh, it's about having lo- really local representation. But when you look at the very small size of these wards, the, the lack of any plausible community of interest in a lot of cases, and the fact that, again, people will re- the amount of choice will reduce significantly Again, you can see why this in practice is proving to be a very bad idea. How do people learn about politics? One of the things you do is you talk to people you know. You have your friend who knows a lot more about politics than you or has been reading the news or they saw a candidate down at the shops and they heard a thing and you talk to them about that. And that knowledge all becomes redundant if they live in a different ward to you, you know, like not entirely, but it does become less useful. And so like, okay, you can still get that knowledge from your next door neighbor, but, you know, your friend who lives half, literally the same suburb, but just a few streets away, they're in a different ward, you know, they go, oh, I heard that this, I used to vote for this candidate, they're great, and you go to, you go to vote and they're not on your ballot. Even if you brush over the administrative complications that we're encountering, the fact that it will almost certainly be the case that for a lot of these councils, they're going to be redrawing boundaries after every election. Um, and it may be the case that particularly for Port Phillip, they get to the election and the boundaries aren't in compliance and whether there's, they have, they can go to a losing council can go to court. Whether whether there are any legal uh, legal complications arising from that, I don't know. But it's generally speaking not good democratically to have inconsistent voter values between wards. And one other thing as well that I have noticed when I was looking at this analysis, it was around the year two thousand or so that they allowed proportional representation, multi-member wards became a bit more of a thing in Victoria. Since then, you've noticed over time, the average magnitude, the number of councillors per ward across Victoria has been going up. Basically, every time they review councils, um, they very rarely move back to single-member wards. They very much have been expanding it, and I actively think that's a good thing. Um and that's been steadily happening until those reforms happen. And what you see then, what's quite interesting, and I, I had a chart in one of my blog posts on this topic, where I look at the rural magnitude and the urban magnitude, and rural councils had slightly bigger magnitude because some rural councils are elected at large, and in Victoria that doesn't just doesn't happen in urban councils outside of the city of Melbourne itself. And then from 2020, the rural magnitude keeps going up. In fact, it speeds up. And the urban magnitude drops back down. And we're going to see that go even more in 2024 when the rest of the state is implemented. We're going to see a rate of practically one in urban Victoria, while rural Victoria keeps moving in an opposite direction. Like, I think that does make a big impact on how councils work. And I'm not sure it really makes sense that we're saying it works for one and it works for the other. Like, it's even harder to draw those boundaries in some of those rural councils. But as you're saying, it's not not exactly like it's easy in the urban areas. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Henry, for joining me. Thanks for having me, Ben. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow the Tally Room on Mastodon at tallyroomatmastodon.au or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. 
Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to the tallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Christopher for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.